This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Let It Roll the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate kicks off our eighth season with special guest scholar and musician Yuri Campbell to review the key lessons we learned from Nate's discussions with Ed Ward about his first volume of rock and roll history. Ward's approach of following the audience and looking at the broader cultural history of the music has informed every podcast in this series, and Nate and Yuri review the key elements of Ward's approach. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and it's a special episode, kind of a meta episode of Let It Roll, if you will. I'm joined by my friend Yuri Campbell, a PhD in American history and musician and longtime, very knowledgeable music fan. And I've forced him to re-listen to all of my episode interviews with Ed Ward. And we both read Ed Ward's History of Rock and Roll Volume 1. And so this episode is kind of a recap and an attempt to digest what we learned from my 12 hours of conversations with Ed Ward, or shit, it's more like 16 hours of conversations with Ed Ward about this book. So welcome, Yuri. Thanks for having me, Nate. My pleasure. And so what did we learn from this endless 16 hours of podcasting? <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of information uh, in, in the book and then, that information in the book is blown up in these conversations that you had with Ed. Uh, and, you know, the book is kind of a, it's a timeline, right? It kind of goes in chronological order. Yeah. And it kind of, yeah. it spills out, you know, these characters and their artistic output and the businesses that they started to forward, you know, the, the monetization of this artistic output, et cetera. And so there's a lot of specific information that you can learn from these books about the people who 
created, you know, these various musical genres leading up to and including rock and roll, et cetera. But, uh, I, you know, you mentioned that I have a PhD. I'm kind of, you know, an academically oriented person. And um, I tend to look at these kind of things through a, a, a sort of a framework or a structure. And I try to, like, get high above it so I can kind of look down on what's going on and then filter my, my view of it or filter my reading of it through successively like closer levels all the way down to the, to the granular. And so when I think about what I learned from this, I think of it in terms of, you know, starting with the fact that, you know, people are social and that the cultural uh, output that, that people create happens you know, under the umbrella of a, a sort of overall social structure that also includes politics, that includes economics. Uh, and each of those uh, uh, human endeavors, let's say, has their own qualities. You know, politics is, a, is about managing power, those types of things. Uh, you have culture, which is kind of how we do things, how we produce items for each other, the economic is how we manage the value of work for each other and those kind of things. And so when I, I, I think it's worthwhile just, you know, making a very brief mention of that to kind of put rock and roll and these business endeavors and the, the technological advances, et cetera, in that sort of a framework and, and, and note that it's kind of tucked away over here in, this, in, in the cultural production section of human endeavor in, in this cultural production, you know, section of this history of, uh, of America. And, but it does have, you know, it ends up having some economic uh, connections, obviously, and it even has some political stuff that ends up getting thrown in there with the, uh, the payola thing. And, yeah, the uh, backlash was a big element of this that the, the you know, as part of preparing for this, I went back and listened to all the episodes with Ed, which was probably much more painful for me to hear my own voice that much than uh, I hope it was for anybody else. But the the element of backlash is something that I think is becoming a theme of the of the series, you know, the payola scandal. And, you know, if you look at the actuarial tables of the first wave of rock and rollers, they're dismal. I mean, a lot of the deaths were accidental, obviously, but, you know, there's jail sentences, there's religious conversions, being Elvis being pressed into the army. And, you know, when you look at other episodes we've done about people like the Weavers and, and you know, looking at Moby Grape, for example, uh, this element of the authorities cracking down on new music is, is a recurring theme. So um, just sorry to interrupt, but just wanted to bring that up. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, when, when, when you start to, to consider rock and roll within the framework of these, these social and cultural and political and, and economic, you know, activities, it helps us to like be able to start to identify you know, uh, themes and patterns that we can use to think about other, you know, forms of cultural output or other eras of, of American experience, et cetera. And yeah. Since, yeah. Since, since it's a history, it, it's, it's like change over time, you know? And so you need to kind of have a framework to look at change over time. 
Yeah, and and getting the opportunity to talk to Ed at length about this book was such an honor because the dude, you know, has lived it from the early 50s as a child all the way through, you know, as a rock critic and writer and historian from the 70s on, you know, and a fan in the 60s, has so much firsthand knowledge, plus all his research, his decades on the air with NPR. And so it's the kind of thing where, you know, reading the book, any generalized history like this is going to have mistakes. You know, I think in the original edition, he called AC, AP Carter, AC Carter. And, you know, I saw some country music fans just flip out about that. But like, that's not the fucking point, you know, with this thing is that he's woven this incredibly complicated history into a pretty concise volume and managed to stay on point and be readable. And, you know, I sort of had this fantasy going in that I would challenge him on these things. And I, I kind of learned the hard way that, you know, <laughs> if you challenge Ed, be prepared to get slapped down. Uh, you know, so like, yeah, I mean, the, the basic, like, I think the goal was to sort of answer the question, how did rock and roll happen? Which I didn't even really comprehend was a answerable question when I started this. I was just like, oh, history of rock and roll. I'll talk to Ed Ward. This will be fun. Uh, and I'd been into increasingly into early R&B in particular. I've been pretty literate on country. I've been pretty literate on rock and roll history. But that early R&B stuff, I really had gotten into as a byproduct of like Mark Lewinson's Beatles, massive Beatles biography and realizing the key thing for me going into this was realizing that the Beatles had one version of rock and roll history that's much more aligned with what Elvis understood to be rock and roll history, as far as we know, or or Ray Charles. And then the Rolling Stones and everybody after the Rolling Stones has a different view of rock and roll history. And so, you know, like, I think when people write rock and roll history now, they tend to start with the blues and then jump to Elvis and, you know, maybe add in some country. But that's really not a very linear progression. Is that, you think, a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the book makes it clear that that the uh, roots of rock and roll go back into a number of different musical genres. And that uh, it's not easy to separate rock and roll from just popular music as it as it as it arose during the you know the inception of what ends up being the music industry. So uh, you know when you say I, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the difference between the Beatles and Elvis and the Rolling Stones. And the Rolling Stones are typically considered to be you know the sort of bluesier, for lack of a better term, the blacker. Well, uh, like the the Beatles the didn't. Pop group. Yeah, I mean, what I mean is, like, the Beatles literally didn't give a shit about electric blues. Like, as far as it's right. known, John Lennon hadn't heard Jimmy Reeves, for example, until the night he went home and, and the Beatles went home with the Rolling Stones and hung out together the, for, for the first time and Brian Jones starts playing his Jimmy Reeves records. Like, you know, whereas when I grew up, rock and roll history sort of, you know, we would talk about robert johnson and hank williams and then we would you know go into elvis basically and and to me it's like that leaves out louis jordan and bob wills who are these enormous (laughs) figures that are much more 
directly direct antecedents to Elvis and the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles were way into way, way, way more into stuff like Ray Charles um, and Motown and, you know, all the classic first wave of rock and rollers, the Chuck Berry's and the Elvis's and little Richard uh, and, and paid no mind, you know, to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and the Electric Blues, which I, I mean, I'm not trying to diminish those guys at all. They're American masters and that wave does come into rock but i feel like 50s rock and roll and one thing I, I learned from talking to ed and reading the book was you know there were multiple african-american audiences at the time and the blues tended to be heard by older african-americans and country african-americans you know people that were maybe they were in chicago or los angeles but they were recent immigrants from the south you know and the more sophisticated younger african-americans who grew up in those cities looked down on them i mean i'm sure you've heard the slur bama getting thrown around you know and and that that's that was very informative to me anyway so you know that was kind of one of the things i was hoping came across in the in the series well you know one of the things that i found interesting about like the way the beatles and the rolling stones were fitted into the book is that uh, it seemed as though there was a dearth of information and available recordings, et cetera, for, you know, young people in England. And so like, like the, the advent of skiffle seemed, you know, strangely out of step with the times, you know, it was this sort of focus on this, relatively small and narrow version of music, I think, coming out of New Orleans. And, you know, that's what blew up for a period of time in England, right? Yeah. And it's 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 interest it was interesting to see that, you know, out of this, you know, this it wasn't uh, a real it didn't seem like there was a real broad palette that the Beatles uh started with but that they they started to voraciously consume whatever that they could get hold of wasn't real clear to me you know where they were getting their their sort of musical antecedents from uh but it's definitely it's definitely clear that that the beatles were much more in that kind of uh um eclectic you know camp that I think uh, uh, Elvis ended up moving into, right? And that and the, the, the Rolling Stones never really, really accessed, if you wanted to, like, try and make a split about that. Um, yeah, yeah. so the Stones are sort of, I mean, they definitely started out as purists and eva- evangelizing rhythm and blues. And their definition yeah. of rhythm and blues, you know, and Brian Jones' letters to, I think it was Melody Maker, make it very clear. He didn't consider... Uh, you know, stuff like Ruth Brown to be rhythm and blues. He he considered that to be black pop music. Um, and he was, you know, harder on, say, Brooke Benton or somebody like that than he was on, on Ruth right. Brown. But, but you know, he considered rhythm and blues to be this urban blues, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, et cetera, et cetera, and managed to rewrite history, I think, that, that, that you know, the Stones had such an influence. I mean, one thing that's, that, and this is sort of off topic, but, 
you know, if you look at the history of British rock music, the Stones are very much the starting point in a way that the Beatles are kind of a dead end. I mean, you know, if the bands that are directly influenced by the Beatles, you know, what, the Searchers, the Hollies, Jerry and the Pacemakers, that line doesn't really continue. You could kind of say the Kinks were, but the Kinks were in London and much to me much more influenced by the Stones. So the Stones kind of are the er rock band, as it were. And everybody after them, you know, kind of followed their lead and in a way that like David Bowie to me delineated what is punk rock or what is proto punk. You know, like even though D- Bowie is kind of left out of the histories of punk rock, to me it's like this is the guy who picked up who popularized Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. This is the guy who saved the Stooges. And and you know the only reason basically well, anybody go ahead Iggy Pop. yeah well literally saved Iggy Pop yeah and and you know and and put the Stooges forward and and kind of codified this Velvet Stooges New York Dolls thing but that, that's kind of a tangent but um like how well, much you, you definitely you go definitely ahead. have you you definitely have watershed artists who because they get there first. And because their their vision is so strong and passionate and and they have done a certain amount of homework, you know, that they lead the way. And and I you know, again, it seemed like the amount of information that was available to youth in England during the fifties regarding American rock, even regarding blues, rhythm and blues, jump blues, any of that kind of stuff, it seemed like it was relatively limited. Extremely so limited. Yeah, so when the Stones show up with their version of it, and and their and not just their version of the music, but their version of the history, and what constitutes, you know, for lack of a better term, authentic bluesy rock, you know, something that the the kids can grasp hold of and call their own, you know, they're obviously they they lead the way, you know, and the, yeah. and one of the things that comes out of this is that the Beatles, that the the Stones were were trying to you know by the end of the book the stones are trying to find their way into the spotlight and into the songwriting you know song publishing game and all that sort of thing and the beatles had had already like staked the claim to a, a deep understanding of how that was all going to work and they were already uh on their way to using a broader palette to create a wide range of music, right? That yeah. obviously isn't isn't going to be very blues uh, uh, oriented, and it, it's just you know, it's it's interesting to me that you know that that like to me that one of the most important things about the Beatles and the Stones is they represent this moment where there is you know whether or not the, the the british population had access to a lot of these recordings etc there were a lot of recordings right yeah. and there was a palette that was available and by by the late 50s and early 60s you know this palette is starting to all get melded together and you're starting to, instead of having, you know, like Bo Diddley, who has his Bo Diddley beat, and he tries to apply it to other things, to surf music or whatever, but it's still always just kind of this sort of narrow application. I love Bo Diddley. He's, an, he's immensely influential and important, but he also has this sort of limited aspect. You have Chuck Berry, who, who has his, his, his sound and his approach, and even though he really tries to, you know, 
be a worldwide representative of rock and roll, and in fact is uh, in his in his way. And even though he he tries to do things like write songs in Spanish, he does write songs in Spanish. He he writes Anthony Boy, which is kind of puts him in the Italian American population with you know some sort of dialogue with another a, a friend who's an Italian American, and it has these kind of stereotypical Italian pop music kind of riffs in it. But it's still this sort of narrow Chuck Berry kind of thing. But you start getting these bands, these people who put together bands who, uh, uh, that are made up of multiple individuals who are steeping themselves in for, you know, what amounts to, to the, the pop music and pre-rock and roll and early rock and roll canon. And they start using this palette and putting it together in these really imaginative ways and start setting the table for, you know, the years that are going to come directly after the, the close of, of the time frame that's considered in the book, where there's just this tremendous explosion of, of stuff that's just rock and roll, all these different iterations of rock and roll. I mean, it's, by 1963, you're what, we're like two, three years away from the Velvet Underground and Captain Beefheart. And it's, yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, What's the about come? And I think that that comes from these bands starting to, to take up, you know, the palette and starting to play with it. And much the way that Elvis did when he came back from the army, you know? Yeah. And let's get to that. But first I want to play our first song snippet. This is um, Jackie Brinson with Ike Turner on piano, Rocket 88. You've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style. And that was Jackie Brinson's Rocket 88, which should probably have been Ike Turner and his Rhythm Kings Rocket 88, but for some record company chicanery, named the, you know, made the singer the artist of, of record. But like a lot of people say that's the first rock and roll record. Ed Ward doesn't. Ed Ward doesn't want to concede anything as rock and roll basically until uh, uh, Little Richard. But for me, Rocket 88 is pretty close to it because you can, you know, Elijah Walden and some other people want to push it back a little bit to like Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight or Wynoni Harris's version. But to me, that stuff is clearly swing. I mean, if you listen to it, it's right. got a 1940s feel. It's got the horns. and But Rocket 88 is very punk rock. It's got the distorted guitar. There's a, a saxophone, but not a big horn section. And it swings, but it rocks as much as it swings. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't have a real dog in the fight over the first rock and roll song. Yeah, it's a pretty anybody dumb argument. Thinks, any, excuse me. Anybody who thinks that Rocket 88 is the first rock and roll song, they have an excellent argument. Because all you have to do is listen to it, and you can hear the song, you know, Rocket. Yeah. It has, it has a, a momentum to it. And it has a sort of violence to it that is what I think we generally uh, associate with with rock and roll. Um, and it, and it, in you know, I guess the way Ed Ward described Little Richard's, you know, 
planting a flag uh, for rock and roll. It seemed it seemed to me that he he associated that with the drumming. Yeah, Earl and Palmer's four four. Right, the the violence and the persistence of this drumming, and and I agree with that. Whether or not you know that constitutes the first rock and roll, I I think you know uh, that the, the drums being added to the blues. Uh, if you go back to like Arthur Crudup and his mid forties recordings where he, he's just, you know, electric guitar, but he has a drummer with him, even when it's not upbeat, you know, even yeah. when it's more like a shuffle, it utterly changes the feel and the experience of the blues. And it starts to connect the music with machine sounds, with the sounds of, you know, the locomotive. And, you know, the drums are a, a martial instrument, you know? It makes everybody in the room, uh, you know, pay attention to the same meter. It brings everybody online, makes it easier to dance. And, you know, if you listen to those, those Arthur Credit uh, recordings, uh, like Rock Me, Baby, you you start to hear that that train sound and it just catches you and it starts to propulse you forward and it starts to bring the blues into that you know into that rhythm and blues arena and it starts to bring the blues and rhythm and blues and, and the pop music that's going to come from that online with some of the jazz music that came before from the, you know from the jazz age and the big band age and the, and the swing age where they were clearly you know producing these drum beats that were reminiscent of factory life and 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 the locomotive you know experience with the train etc and I, th I think that's important because that backbeat it's something that helps to to formulate and marshal attention and marshal energy and connect it with youth cultures. I mean, the jazz age has what I consider to be the first real modern youth culture. And, and, and so once you get to little Richard in that drum beat, you know, you, you have this formula that is, is, it just captures the listener and brings you in on this very visceral level. And you can build all of the other cultural and musical and business ideas all around that beat, you know, all around that pulse. And to me, it starts that that starts to show up with with credit, you know. Yeah, and 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 I, I, I probably should have played the credit first, but but I wanted to plant my flag for the Rocket eighty eight, and we'll play credit here in a bit. But one thing that that we had talked about offline before uh, starting the show was, you know, I was I was kind of hitting you for what did we miss? And I think I think you're bringing up the flappers and the youth culture is key. And you know, Ed did leave out the flappers, and he did leave out the beats. And th to me, the other the musical thing that he left out that's the most important is jazz and Louis Armstrong. To me, the fact that Louis Armstrong played on uh, some of the first blues records, you know, he talked about Mamie Smith's, I think it's Crazy Blues, the first big blues hit. Right. And, and he played with Jimmy Rogers uh, on... Um, I'm blanking on which song, but he played with Jimmy Rogers on a key song. And to me, that says that 
the jazz, you know, and, and Louis Armstrong's big contribution to music is the improvised solo. And, you know, because before, you know, Potato Head Blues and these other recordings with the Hot Five and Hot Seven, something like the original Dixieland Jazz Band, that was jazz at the time. That was a worldwide right. smash. And we sort of retroactively decided that that wasn't jazz because it wasn't improvised and that Paul Whiteman wasn't jazz because it wasn't improvised and it didn't swing. But if you were there in the 20s, that was jazz. And Yeah, I mean, Paul Whiteman was the king of jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Self-proclaimed, <laughs> perhaps, but... but. Yeah, I don't. I, I personally don't buy any of that. I think that's all nonsense. I, I think I think that's all that early stuff is jazz. Even if there isn't improvisation, it, it it you know the core of what we consider to be jazz is there. And it, and it, and again, it's this. It's a mix of rhythm and 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 uh, melody. Racket. Melody yeah, yeah, melody and racket essentially with the original yeah. Dixieland jazz band. Anyway, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but like you said, you know, offline that, that you felt like you could understand why Ed had left it out because if you start pulling on the jazz thread, then you have a much bigger story to tell. But I just feel like since jazz so dominated popular music in the twenties and the thirties, you know, in the thirties as swing and then rock and roll clearly evolves from jump blues, which comes straight from swing through Louis Jordan. I just don't think you can leave that out. And, and trying to prove that argument i went back and listened to a bunch of early count basie and kansas city six and stuff and i really sort of came to the conclusion that bob wills and the texas playboys had more to do with rock and roll than count basie did because that dang polka beat and the drums you know come through and it's the marshall beat like you're talking about whereas basie's drummers you know philly joe johnson company they're always swinging and they're working the the cymbals more than the bass drum and you know, what do you think of that argument? I mean, to me, it's like the two grandfathers of rock and roll are Bob Wills and Louis Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think that, uh, you know, that the importance of, of somebody like Bob Wills, who is not just providing this, you know, you call it the polka beat, an easily danceable beat, but it's also, he's also somebody who's out there churning through cultural output. You know, Ed was talking about him showing up in into various towns and running off to the color town to grab the, you know, latest, you know, information, recordings, what have you, from uh, African American sources, and you know that kind of cross pollinization is so important, and uh, and so you know those kinds of uh, creative efforts are exactly what leads to the growth of some kind of new, uh, uh, newly formulated music. I, I, I do want to say one thing about, about jazz. I, I, I don't have a problem with it being left out of the story uh, as, as, as far as like continuing to return to it. But I do think that it, the, the history of rock and roll as a book is, is a little bit weakened by the fact that during the portion of the book that covers the 20s and the 30s and even into the 40s, you need to mention jazz because it is the dominant youth culture. It is a very, it's, it is the popular musical format and it sort of starts to carve out some of the space that's going to later be taken up by rhythm and blues, by country, by, you know, country swing, what have you. Right. Yeah. And, and musicians, you know, while the society may have, have wanted to, to create divisions between races, et cetera. Musicians often didn't care about that and thought of it as an impediment. 
And they certainly were aware of, a lot of these guys were aware of or became aware of, whether they were white or, or, or black, you know, rural or urban. They, over time, you become aware of these important uh, contributions from the jazz circuit. I, I, think, I think that your assessment of Wills and certainly of Louis Jordan, those are two uh, very important, incredibly talented and, and conceptual you know, especially Bob Wilson, he's very concise, you know, yeah. putting all of this together. It, you know, it's very easy to overlook the importance of those, of those contributions uh, to, to what's going to become rock and roll. And, and let's but, come uh, back to that. But first I want to play uh, a little snippet of Rock Me Baby by Arthur Crudup. And that was Rock Me Baby by Arthur Crudup, which, as you said, is a, a 1940s country blues man, but with a drum, guitar and drums. So definitely, I'm not denying that it's very important in the evolution of American music and a huge influence on rock music. I just think that, you know, that the influence of blues on rock and roll comes later. It's sort of bifurcated. Although it's important to note, like Ed pointed out, that Blues, like if you listen to the Bear Family uh, Blowing the Fuse compilation, which is R&B hits from 1945 to 1960, highly, highly, highly recommended. It gives you this real feel for what was on jukeboxes from the 40s to the throughout the 50s. And you'll hear these country blues songs, John Lee Hooker and others had hit singles on jukeboxes. But the distinction right. that Ed pointed out was they weren't on the Chitlin circuit. They were playing little clubs in Detroit and Chicago and, and Memphis and a few other places. And sometimes they go down to Houston, but the, the big R&B groups, you know, Roy Brown and Charles Brown and Winoni Harris and Ruth Brown and Laverne Baker and others, they were working the Chitlin circuit and playing to a whole different crowd of African-American fans. And I think we're probably reaching this young white audience that's starting to get introduced to R&B and sets the groundwork that's going to become the rock and roll generation in a way that Muddy Waters was not. But that's sort of a side tangent to what we were talking about. And I wanted to get back to what you were saying about Bob Wills and Louis Jordan. Well, I mean, you know, I, actually, I don't think I had very much more to say about those, those guys. I mean, I, I personally have a deep and abiding love for Louis Jordan and he is so clever. And, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, go ahead and appreciate Louis Jordan for a second. I don't want to stop by that because I've, I've really come to love Louis as well. Well, I, I mean, just, you know, aside from his historical import or how he threads any of this all together, he's just, you know, a very talented songwriter, very entertaining person. Uh, uh, and, you know, his career... Uh, he's one of those people that if you follow his career, you can see him reinventing himself as he needed to, you know, uh, from the yeah. late 30s into the V-Disc era. And then after it, after the, after the war, he does start to write these songs. And I, I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but there's something he did in 47 or 48 that's like 
a very blistering rock and rollish type song. Yeah, you know? the Saturday Night Fish Fry for one jumps out. And here's the thing I wanted yeah. to bring up to you, and 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 I think as an African American, you can speak to this in a way that I can't. But my take on Louis Jordan is that. You know, this is a guy who was so dominant in the 1940s. People don't have any concept because he's, I think, right. been forgotten. But this is a guy who, you know, in a couple of years there in the late 40s, like had, you know, five or six of the top 10 R&B hits of the year would be Louis Jordan songs. Plus, he was on the pop charts like a mofo. And yet, by the early 50s, I mean, he's having his last hit by 51 or 52, tries to, you know, Quincy Jones even takes him in the studio in the 50s re-records his classic hits with like the Mickey Baker King Curtis session band that you know from Atlantic Records that was dominating the charts at the time and doesn't really get any traction and I think one thing that we've seen over and over again is that African American audiences do not want to look back and I think Louis Jordan was a victim of that because I think his sense of humor and he was old even for his time you know like kind of the way Chuck Berry was old older than Elvis and his other musical contemporaries Louis Jordan was actually older than most of the people you know that were hot in the 40s he you know, his peers tended to break through in the 30s. And and there's an element of self-effacing humor and eye-rolling and other things that I think that the next generation, you know, the bebop generation, viewed as as Uncle Tomism. I mean, do you think it's fair to say that? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, elaborate on that a little bit. Well, what, what I would say is that I, I don't know if it's, if it's as simple as saying that African-American audiences don't like to look back. But I do think that what you know what you have is that uh, when when you have these cultural products that come out of the African American community that achieve a certain level of success, and those those forms and those those uh, expressive tendencies end up getting sort of co-opted by, for lack of a better term, you know, white society or the broader mainstream society. You know, the, the, the young, especially the young African-American community, and especially the young African-American community that arose during the post-war period, they wanted to continue to have, you know, their, their own imprimatur on the new music coming out of their communities. And you did have this tendency to look back on these, these great artists who created timeless music. Uh, and, and the young the young kids in the African-American community were just moving on. They were moving on with their fashion. They were moving on with their, with their musical tastes, their expectations of popular culture, politics, the economy, all of that. So they look back on Louis Armstrong and Louis Jordan and a lot of these other, you know, a lot of the big band era, all that stuff just gets wiped off the face of the planet for this, you know, by rhythm and blues, Motown, jazz, all that, kind, you know, like bebop, hard bop, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the nature of it. Um, you know, I, we should have a little, at some point we should have a little conversation about technology and, yeah. and, and how it works because, because uh, it's, none of it just disappears. And there are people within the African-American community that will, you know, older people, even some of the younger people that will point you backwards, you know, and that want you to look at, Louis, Louis Jordan or Louis Armstrong or the Nicholas Brothers or what have you, and, and they want you to like, look at these amazing talents, you know, look at Cab Calloway. You can look at Cab Calloway and say, oh, he's a clown, you know, or you can look at Cab Calloway and say, 
He's one of the most brilliant performers of all time. And everything he does transcends all of these, you know, these, these temporal changes that occur in style, et cetera. It, it does happen. And that's because of the nature of, of the, of the technology of recordings, et cetera. Yeah. And let's, I'm glad you brought up the technology because that is a huge part of it. And, and that's, you know, one thing I thought Ed did a great job of bringing together the way that the shift, you know, the collapse in shellac availability in World War II and the musicians union strike at the same time, which isn't technological, but it's cultural. But then the emergence of vinyl records, you know, first in two competing formats, the 45 single and the 33 uh, RPM long player, but also magnetic tape recording comes along and you know people like les paul and mitch miller pioneer the use of this stuff for overdubs and the creation of the produced record and so um you know that becomes more and more a factor but one interesting thing about rock and roll is it's very much sort of a punk medium in insofar as it's produced by people who don't have a lot of resources like sam phillips or the chess studios these were not top of the line studios this was not they were not working with equipment comparable to what, say, Columbia or DECA had or Capitol Records in L.A. The, you know, that's pretty homebrew stuff. Even somebody like Sam Phillips, who's kind of a tech genius with his slapback echo and different things that he invented. But it's pretty kitchen sink. And so that those, you know, the implications of overdubbing don't really come into rock and roll until George Martin and the Beatles uh, in you know, the late 60s, even though right. there's some early experiments like with, you know, Buddy Holly's. posthumous work they they overdub a ton of stuff onto these demo tapes he made in his bedroom but you know that that's sort of an aberration so you know we've got vinyl instead of shellac metallic magnetic tape in the studio and then um what what other big technological innovations in this prime you know 50 to 63 period are we talking about did we miss anything well, I mean, you you can talk about the equipment they used, you know, some of the microphones, and and those type of things, um, and they they changed the quality of the sound and the fidelity of the sound. Um, I you know when I when when I, not not to just go off in a, in, a, in a totally different tangent or, or or try to to drag the conversation in a completely different direction, but when I when I start thinking about the technology it's just like in a a broad sense these recordings allow for uh, a condensing of time and space that you know we live in time space this condensed time space it allows these moments of creativity in one community to be captured and sort of copied or you know mined so to speak, and then passed around not only to different other communities, but through time, right? And they and, and that because of that, you start to have the ability of people in one community to sit and listen to the cultural output of another community in their own little bedroom in their living room in their bars their, you know whatever their church their church meeting rooms and and the influence of that is is hard to overstate you know it's just it's if you don't have those recordings then you have to actually just go to the places where these people are playing 
And once you start to have these recordings, time and space gets crunched and, and even defeated, you know? And yeah. some, of, some of the social structures that are in place start to get troubled and start to, to, to bend and warp, you know, especially uh, uh, dividing lines between races and ethnicities and, and those sort of things. And, and as a result of, of the nature of the technology and the way it, it, it works within the society as a whole, especially when you also add in uh, radio, jukeboxes, and, and even television and film, you, you start to, to, to have these circumstances during the post-war period where that overall push in the United States and even in the West to use democracy as a buffer against the kind of cataclysmic, catastrophic, you know, political carnage that came to bear in the first two world wars, right? One of the chief responses is, well, hey, you know, democracy can help us avoid, you know, such cataclysms. And democracy involves this kind of let's let's give voice to uh, some of these marginalized people and let's let's look at the idea of equality in our society differently. And rock and roll and, and popular music in general ends up having a very important part in the progress of, of these democratic ideals, et cetera. And a lot of that comes from the technology, from your ability to get a little, you know, for, for, for a, a, a young white male or female to order a little Richard record and take it to their bedroom and listen to it, you know, and absorb it as a personal experience and to fit it into their lives, you know? Yeah. And let me jump in and interrupt you because I want to play uh, Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio's Train Kept a Roller. And that was Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio's Train Kept a Rollin'. And I, I sort of picked that song because it's an example of what white kids produced after they'd been hearing this African-American music. And in the case of the Burnett brothers, they were in Memphis and they were actually going to the black clubs and seeing B.B. King and Johnny Ace and these guys live. But they're also hearing it on the radio and hearing it on record. And the feedback on that record, you know, it's way ahead of its time. And, and so that's – I grabbed that one because – it sums up a moment when these white kids are given license to just go ape and, and be uncontrolled in a way that hadn't been allowed in white culture before and, and had been allowed in African-American culture, but just because, you know, basically the big money and the big power didn't care what was going on in African-American culture. And the kids were not being served by, you know, how much is that doggy in the window and, 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 on top of old Smokey and all that kind of stuff that was being put out in the early 50s, which, you know, if you look at that stuff as a balm for the PTSD of World War II, it makes sense. But the kids 
hadn't been in combat and they hadn't been separated from right. a man and, and so on. And so they wanted the wild and they wanted the frenzy and, and the rock and roll got it to it. And I, I want to segue cause we, we don't have much time and there's one more point I want to get to, which is, you know, there's this like, and I'm glad you brought it up that the, there was an interest on the part of sort of liberal leaders like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and other architects of society to democratize. But that, you know, once it starts happening, then there's a backlash on the part of things like the Memphis Draft Board and specific FBI agents. And, and you know, there, there's this muddy, eddy flow. And so, you know, the first wave of rock and roll is very brief. It's a one or two year period. And then there's this effort to get it under control. But it's not totally artificial. I mean, if you listen to Fabian and stuff like that, you're like, Jesus, you know, what happened to this music? You know, these guys can't sing. The the songwriting's terrible, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you've got Phil Spector with the Teddy Boys and, and you've got Barry Gordy. He hasn't formed Motown yet, but he's he's, you know, cutting tracks with Jackie Wilson and Marv Johnston. And it's coming along. But I think one thing that's happening is in America, you're evolving an assembly line production of rock and roll that by the early 60s, you know, I think it's apotheosis is Motown, where you cannot deny what Barry Gordy accomplished. I mean, great music, whether you want to call it rock and roll or soul or pop, you know, or just Motown. I mean, you can't deny the artistic it's, it's, achievement. Yeah. I mean, it's a, what, what Barry Gordy puts together and, and even stacks, I mean, it, it, you start talking about uh, an amalgam you know, and Barry Gordy specifically goes out and says, you know, I'm, I don't want my business to be ghettoized. I want my business to reach white people. That's where the money is. I want my, my business to, to, to be as available as possible. Even if we have different charting, you know, systems, even if society is, is, you know, ebbing and flowing with, you know, ideas of equality and integration and all this sort of thing. He's putting this business out there, amazing music, but it's, it, you know, he wants to like sell to everybody. And that's, yeah. that's you know, I, I think that, you know, there is this kind of lull with, you know, in the late fifties in, in into the early sixties in America. And it gets filled with teeny bopper music and, and, you know, these things that don't seem exciting or authentic and don't really carry forward uh, the momentum and the substantive content of rock and roll that will, that had previously made it exciting and drawn people in. And that was going to, in the future, you know, continue to draw new generations and, and, and to, to sort of foment new ideas. But I do think that, uh, you know, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I, during that time frame, you know, those recordings that Elvis did when he gets out of the army, it demonstrates that there's this palette available at that point, and everybody started to stir it up. And those those Elvis recordings, very influenced by Hollywood and Hollywood's method of crunching together lots of different cultural perspectives, and and you know, just ramming it together in ways that don't always make sense. But, you know, like before he goes to the army, he, he does the, the the King Creole recordings. And when he gets out, he starts putting together these amazing recordings that are are, are mishmashes of, of, you know, rock and roll and show tunes and Broadway tunes and, and you know, romantic and the Latin ballads. Beat. 
you know, a Latin really- beef, all everything, everything. And, yeah. and you know, when we were talking about Bob Wills earlier, uh, and we we haven't really gotten into the labels, but you know, you can talk about the Erdogan brothers who 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 ran Atlantic. You're talking about these people who had these massive record collections, and they they were making themselves aware of this power. And when you think about Elvis in the armed forces in his tank division or whatever in Europe, he had he took two thousand records with him at a point in time where they hadn't been making recordings for that very long. That's an immense, that's an, an absolutely unbelievable, immense collection of music that he felt necessary to take along with him. And when he gets back, he starts to put this stuff together in ways that's, that, that even if it, it's not necessarily in and of itself important for the continued development of rock and roll, it demonstrates that there's this power that people are, are working with. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up that period, because that's actually, and this is heresy, but probably my favorite Elvis period. I mean, you know, especially when he's when he's doing songs by Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, you know, Little Sister and Viva Las Vegas. And, yeah. and you know, he's still got Scotty. They got rid of Bill Black. DJ Fontana's in and out, but he's still got Scotty. Um, but he's also playing with the nascent Wrecking Crew in L.A. And so you've got right. this killer studio band in Los Angeles. And... When Elvis is trying and when he's got good material, um, you know, he does some really great stuff. And but at the same time, you know, you, you sort of dismissed that Dark Ages period, which it's definitely not as exciting and visceral as the 57, 58, you know, 56, 58 Golden Age. But when you look at the Brill Building and what people like, you know, Thomas and Schumann and what Carol King and Gary Goffin and, you know, what Phil Spector was doing. And, right. you know, even somebody like Neil Sadaka, you know, who's, who's, you know, when we were growing up as Gen Xers, this guy was completely laughable seventies soft rock bilge. And if you even were aware of his hits from the fifties, you know, I remember just having a complete homophobic panic when I, the first time I saw the calendar girl video and, you know, you got Neil Sadaka in his pink coveralls, it's right. around and I was just like, what is this? But if you actually learn about it, you know, this is this incredibly talented pop composer playing with King Curtis and Mickey Baker and, and, you know, writing songs. I mean, there's a real body of work. And I think that to me, the Beatles are the connecting bridge. They're the ones that were hearing the Shirelles and, you know, will you still love me right. tomorrow? And, and, and then he kissed me and stuff like that and bringing it all together. And in a way that, because they were so self-contained and because they came up around the same time as Bob Dylan, who's another independent songwriter in the self-contained unit, that it creates this conflict between what the American record business had codified as an assembly line manufacturer of music. Like, we'll take the best singer and they'll sing. And we'll take the best songwriters and they'll write songs. We'll take the best instrumentalists and, you know, you've got a hot road band, great. But I want to record with these guys that are going to give me the, the hit track in 45 minutes, not your band that's going to take, you know, six hours. And, right. and so, you know, and, and there's this conflict going on. And, and it doesn't really come to the surface. And, you know, hopefully I'll get to talk about it with Ed if we talk about the second book. But, you know, that conflict explodes with the monkeys where, you know, you've got Don Kirshner, the king of the Brill building, right. you know, tr- since the Beatles wouldn't do a TV show, they try to f- fake one. And, you know, great music, voice and heart, Neil Diamond, all these other great songwriters, great wrecking crew backing. Mickey Dolenz is a pretty good singer. Mike Nesmith, you know, 
Peter York are talented and contributing. But there's this real backlash because the Beatles create this notion that music should be self-contained. And that's, you know, this big conflict that's going to come up. I mean, do you think that the Beatles were just like such a freak one-off thing because of the confluence of their talent and their opportunity that they reshifted everything? Or do you think that would have happened anyway without the Beatles? Oh, I, I mean... I, I think they got there first and they just, they happened to be the band that was ready to take advantage of, of that circumstance. I, they are, you can't help but look at them and, and think of them as a one-off. Nobody else really did what they did. Um, I definitely think that the, the, the Beatles, you know, following on, the idea of Elvis as somebody who put together, you know, he, he chose the songs he wanted to, to record once he, you know, in 60, 61, chose the people he wanted to play with. He kind of starts to, to put his own imprimatur on it. He's, he's, he's creative in a sort of band leaderish way in the way that Bob Wills was. Then the Beatles are right there just a couple of years later. They're like not only putting together their own songs or their own like playlists, so they're writing their songs they're going after the publishing game and they do, they utterly turn the whole thing around. I, I, I want to say one thing else about this sort of, sort of idea of this, this dark period is I think, I think that, or, or this period where it wasn't quite as exciting or what have you, you know, 59, 50, you know, 60, 61 is that, you know, at this point you start to get the creation of a youth culture that, it, that, that, uh, the business world, is really starting to get their hooks in them and starting to understand that uh, they can sell to these people. And they're, try they're starting to try and figure it out. And one of the things that they start trying to sell to the youth is the idea of the smoldering inner psychology, the smoldering inner individuality, the rebel, and that, uh, that, that kind of package requires or at least it, it naturally leads to a desire to hear the artists voice their own music you know and, and voice their own creations as opposed to like sing some song that somebody else just recorded two months earlier you know and it's it, you know the important you go from a time frame wherein before World War II, you didn't really try to take into consideration what was inside the mind of a teenager, and you didn't even really think of teenagers as this sort of segmented, uh, uh, assailable population of potential consumers. But after World War II, by the end of the 40s, you certainly do see teenagers that way. TV starts to be able to market to them directly, and and, and so does the radio. And so you, you have this situation where, you know, suddenly what teenagers think matters, you know, suddenly what teenagers want and how they view the world starts to be something that controls or the attention, or at least draws strong attention from advertisers, et cetera. And you start to get this youth culture that while they may think they can control it and while they may think that, you know, in the Don Kirshner sort of way that they can just kind of pour product into it, obviously the overall music industry 
will explode in the 60s with a lot of product that comes directly out of this is my voice. Uh, you know, I'm a young person. Youth culture has this idea. I think I, I think I mentioned to you in one of our offline conversations or, or, or you know, sharing of notes that I'm always fascinated by, you know, these late 50s monster movies uh, wherein, you know, you have rock and roll culture smashed in together with car and hot rod culture as they fight off these these monsters, you know, and, and they, they go to the adult and they say, there's this problem. There's this problem that's assailing our community. What are you going to do? And the adults don't take them seriously. And so then the kids just take on the problem themselves, you know, as in the blob, for instance, is, a, is an excellent classic. Example, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood has a way of, of locating these kind of trends and exploiting them with a strange precision, you know, even though they kind of do it in a, in a, in a crab like fashion. And I think that that kind of attention to, uh, to youth culture and to the voicings of young people is is really what's kind of stirring there in that period where it does where where the first vanguard of rock and roll, the the Chuck Berries and the Little Richards, not only do they find themselves in various kind of troubles, et cetera, but their ability to to adapt to there's no the follow up. There's, there's, they can't follow up. They don't there's, have that ability. There's They're no attitude. And let's talk about that. But first, I want to play our last song, which is uh, Ray Charles's "What I Say." Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy, all night long, all night long. Hey, hey, all right. See the girl with the diamond ring. She knows how to shake that thing all right now, now. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. And that was Ray Charles' classic, What I Say. And, you know, like when Ray Charles was inducted in the Hall of Fame in the 80s, I can remember trying to figure out what is it about Ray Charles that's rock and roll. Um, I mean, I was, you know, Ray Charles was omnipresent on TV and in the media in the 70s and 80s, but I didn't really understand until i heard what i say and then i listened to the beatles and you know day tripper and i feel fine and so many songs that are complete rewrite to that riff and understanding that what i say was like an atomic bomb in the liverpool music scene and the hamburg music scene that that was absolutely definitive and Ray Charles is an exception to what we were just talking about, which is this failure to have an act, too. I mean, Ray Charles had like seven acts. He had his singles career, which is, you know, uh, I Got a Woman, and these things where he incorporates gospel into R&B. And that's his contribution to the rock and roll strip. But he, at the same time, he was playing uh, jazz albums and then... He segues, you know, he changes record labels, leaves Atlanta, goes to the major label ABC and does his modern sounds in country and Western, which I think was, you know, rightfully acknowledged on the Ken Burns documentary is, you know, very important in, in American cultural history to, to see this top of the world pop african-american pop performer embrace country western etc cetera, etc cetera. but he's like the only guy i mean you're talking you're you're trying to make a case that elvis has an act too after he gets out of the army and i think you know if you just look at like elvis's back 
yeah, you can see that's beginning. And if you cherry pick the singles, you can make a case for that. But at the same time, the, the next thing he does is GI Blues and Blue Hawaii. And pretty soon he's being dragged down, you know, into the crab and shit like that. And you yeah, know, I, but, mean, I, I think I think with Elvis, I, the only thing that I think is really important about those recordings is it just demonstrates that there's this palette and there's the beginning of this sort of alchemy to create new new horizons. I don't I, I think. Elvis becomes a completely different kind of pop entertainer, and and he sort of leaves the conversation as far as rock and roll, you know, is concerned. Um, But uh, you know, Ray Charles is one of these guys who's just—he's so tremendously talented, right? And he he has no like real. I wouldn't, I don't, I'm not aware of him having a real association with any particular genre, you know, and people don't have that expectation of him. And he, he, he kind of moves back and forth. I think if you look at somebody else who had more than one act, uh, namely James Brown. Yeah. There you're talking about somebody who was like, Oh, this is what James Brown does. And then through sheer will and through sheer, you know, the violence of his talent, he breaks out of, you know, doldrums and, you know, plants his flag. And then in several subsequent iterations that, you know, all take place during a time frame that's not considered in the book. Yeah. Because I mean, he, but in this invent- time frame, he invents soul, essentially. I mean, he, he along with Ray yeah. Charles and others, is at the forefront of yeah. inventing soul. And that Live at the Apollo album is absolutely a flag planted at the absolute summit of pop success for soul music and and you know so yeah james brown is a clear exception to that rule and but james brown i mean jesus he's an exception to everything like easily i think you know you could say louis armstrong and james brown are the two most important musicians of the 20th century in america um i mean there's some other people that argue but those two guys have their place but people like you know obviously buddy holly eddie cochran you know, those guys died too young before they could have a chance at a second act. But the little Richard has his Christian conversion and never has a second act. Jerry Lee Lewis has his various moral disasters and can't have a second act, although he does have a second act eventually by going hardcore country very successfully. But, you know, Chuck Berry never does. He also had legal problems. So it's kind of hard to say that, I mean, almost none of those guys really got a shot at Fats Domino is the exception there. And he just did his Fats Domino thing. Yeah, I, I mean, Fats Domino doesn't have a second act. His, his act just kind of continues because he's kind of a squeaky clean character. You know, he's, he's a harmless persona and he has a couple songs that people like to continually hear. Um, you know, and, and he, was, he was a consistent hit maker and, and, you know, flew the flag for new Orleans, uh, sure. in a, you know, but didn't have the, never, never built on that in the way that Dylan and the Beatles, that, 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 chameleon aspect or the you know chrysalis into the butterfly aspect that becomes so dominant in the rock genre i mean you know phil specter is the definitive guy who never had a second act i mean he couldn't get past you've lost that love and feeling and he tries with tina turner and ike turner uh, unsuccessfully and then basically pouts and goes home in a way he does have a second act with the beatles and so on but he's not the primary artist on that and I just i don't know it just fascinates me about the first rock and roll era very much like the english punk era where that and even the new york punk there's no 
class of 77 artists other than the, well, okay, the Clash and the Jam do have second acts, but, you know, there's this big fall-off where it's like the Buzzcocks can't think of what to do next, and the Sex Pistols obviously implode. So I'm just sort of, you know, fascinated by the fact that none of the original first wave of rock and rollers came up with a follow-up plan. I mean, what, the, it, it, what, what I think is amazing is that Subsequent, you know, it doesn't occur during the time frame considered in the book, but directly after it, you have this explosion of artistic ideas connected specifically with rock and roll that creates a number of artists who have not just first and second acts or whatever, but who begin to think of rock and roll and pop music, et cetera, as something that they can continually play with and transmogrify and, and, and change. And that that goes on for a relatively short period of time, right? Like by, by the early 80s, a lot of these bands have kind of exhausted their ability to, to reinvent themselves. I mean, you know, the Beatles go through a number of different stages. You have the Rolling Stones who go through a number of different stages, psychedelia, heavy blues, country blues. You know, and, and so by the early 80s, you know, late 70s, you even had them trying their hand with disco and with uh, new reggae. Wave, yeah. Reggae, all these kind of things. And, 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 and that, that sort of ecumenical agnosticism that you start to see with those Elvis recordings that I keep returning to, it, it, it explodes through the 60s and, and all the way up to the 80s. But after that, it's hard to find any band that becomes popular subsequent to that time that have that, that have those kinds of varying stages and those kinds of uh, uh experimental that sustained approach, evolution you know? yeah and that's yeah, something I'd, I'd like to talk about at some point because you know bands like t-rex or black sabbath or the ramones were really knocked at the time because they didn't evolve over the course of three or four albums they just right. put out the same great album over and over again. ACDC is the definitive, and ACDC is probably the first one that was self-consciously doing that. So, so yeah, let's let's have you back on the show, and we'll we'll confront questions like that. So, this is Yuri Campbell, PhD. Thanks for coming on the show. I think I'm going to call this series "What We Learned" on Let It Roll. So, Yuri Campbell, I hope we can come back and repeat this delightful conversation. I would love to come back and and you know drill down further into this. And any other of these books, I have some other ideas too if you want to. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jerry. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Edward returns to begin discussing the second volume of his history of rock and roll with Nate. They'll be covering 1964 and 1965, the Beatles, the British Invasion, and America's folk rock response. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, is published by Flatiron Books. 
Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.